weatherman says for New York City and vicinity, we have a chance for scattered severe thunderstorms tonight with locally strong surface winds and a hail. The low tonight should be about 70 to 75 degrees. For tomorrow, a sunny, hot, and humid day, a high somewhere between 90 to 95 degrees. I'd like to repeat that. The high tomorrow will be somewhere between 90 to 95 degrees. The temperature reading right now, just off Times Square, is 79 degrees. The humidity is 72%. The wind is from the southwest at 7 miles an hour. The barometer 30.25 inches and rising. And there you have the latest on news. This has been Ted Malley reporting. Next news over WOR at 11 o'clock tonight with Ed Pettit reporting. Your station for news. Who can do more with a dollar than you can? American Korean Foundation. For instance, the live Peggy Bank in Korea. Produces two letters a year. Yes, each pig produces two litters a year. And baby pigs go into new villages in Korea. Help as much as you can with dollars to American Korean Foundation. Grand Central Post Office, New York. Now stay tuned for Gene Shepard over WOR AM and FM in New York. He's been given the same weather now for two and a half weeks. <laughs> All right, gang. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. The man that all of you have been waiting for. The man that the nation loves. <laughs> that newest star in the firmament of entertainment. Here he is. It's your old friend, Gene Shepard. Oh, yeah? Listen, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but bows will never hurt me. I want to thank my announcer for that introduction. It's a little embarrassing. At the, we're here down in the limelight, a den of passion. Yes. Even as you listen now, friends out there in Ohio, poor old benighted Trenton, Let's give Trenton a sigh of sympathy, gang. Oh, oh how terrible it is to be Trenton. That's all right. Oh. <laughs> Don't you wish you were New York? Yeah. Yes, and we're out on the air, and they can hear us all over these places, see? You're listening to the limelight, which is down in the heart of Greenwich Village, where truth is rampant. <laughs> Where, as you stand quietly on the corner of McDougal Street and Sullivan, you can feel the pulsating air of reality. <laughs> Angry poets by the, by, the, by the yard. And walking up and down 7th Avenue, just outside of the limelight here, there are 5,000 girls a minute who have made it from Indianapolis and are waiting for it. <laughs> To happen. <laughs> well, gang, let's give them a sigh of sympathy because it ain't going to happen tonight. Oh. Yes, for all of you tonight to whom it is not going to happen, we dedicate this program. 
Of course, that means a lot of us. I see some uncomfortable shiftings here in this crowd. <laughs> Has it ever occurred to you, though, that Saturday night is one of those great nights of drama? One of those nights. It's a special night, you know, in, in America. I found out that the headhunting tribes of the Amazon basin don't even have days of the week. They don't know it's Saturday night. They do not know that they're supposed to make the scene tonight. <laughs> In fact, I asked one of the natives down there, I says, you know, how does it feel to be on the scene here? He didn't even know he was on a scene, <laughs> which is an American concept. And so everywhere tonight, there must be countless people because it is Saturday night feeding that little, you know, that little thing that you felt when you were a kid. How many of you remember when you were a kid and you were about to have a date with somebody that ineffable, that kind of ephemeral, mysterious other sex? You know that sick feeling in the stomach? <laughs> that excitement? The sweat around the top of the mouth? And you start to sweat through your electric blue sport coat? <laughs> Five minutes after you put it on, you know? And you're standing there in front of the mirror. And even as you watch, in ten minutes you're going to see Esther Jane. The first official date. Even as you watch, pimples are popping out. <laughs> You can hear them ping, all over the mirror, you know. <laughs> there he goes, he's chickening out already. <laughs> it's all right, son. Oh, by the way, speaking of, of, of that world of the, I suppose you might say that world of jello that we all came from. We were all born a bowl of lukewarm cherry jello with no mold. And as we begin to progress, we begin to pick up various symbols. How many of you remember Peter Payne? Let's give old Pete a hand. Listen, Pete was, Pete is one of those great unsung people in showbiz and in American literature. Do you remember P Peter Payne? He was this little green guy that looked like a pickle. Remember he had stubble all over his face? Had a little derby hat. And he had these little yellow feet and he was always sticking grandmothers with this pitchfork. He's always on their back. And in the last panel, in would come this guy with this T-shirt. He looked like Superman or Errol Flynn. And he would come in and it would say, Ben Gay. You remember that? And little Pete would say, curse is spoiled again. And out the window he'd go. Well, the reason I am mentioning Peter Payne tonight is because I got a very sad news release at my desk just two days ago. Peter Payne has been eliminated by the Ben Gay Company. Oh. I think this is rotten. After 20 years of work, after 20 years of digging pitchforks into people's muscles, he's out without so much as a tear. And you know why he's out? They say he's out because, and I'm quoting them, their motivational research team came in with the findings that Peter Payne 
is not a fun guy. <laughs> he is not a fun guy. Well, I ask you, friends, are you a fun guy? Oh, you are. Well, all right. <laughs> Listen, if you were a fun guy, you wouldn't be down in the limelight. <laughs> yes, sir. The fun guys of the world are up in Sardis now, wearing black glasses, playing it cool, eating $4 hamburgers, sitting across a room from Deborah Carr. They don't even read Playboy. They are Playboys. That's the difference. Let's see. Oh, man. You know, speaking of that Playboy world, have you, ever, have you ever wondered and noticed how one way this world is? For those of you who don't know about Playboy, you know, Playboy is a giant fan magazine about chicks. Every piece in there sweats about how great chicks are. And you buy the magazine, you open it up, and one falls right out, you know? <laughs> oh, boy, she's peeking out of the shower there at you. Have you ever seen it? Miss June, there she is. Oh, wow. <laughs> looks out there. Boy, and she looks like she's been blown up like a beach ball, you know? <laughs> the first thing you do is look for the valve stem. <laughs> Incidentally, are you aware, girls, that, that you can now get inflatable ones? Yeah, seriously, you blow up like water wings. I saw them advertised, and I, and, I, and I pictured, as soon as I saw that, I pictured this fantastic scene. Here she is with Clarence, and they're at that moment of great, you know, that moment of great tender realization. They're in front of this screened-in porch over in Teaneck. You know, and, and, and the lights are discreetly out in the house. The parents went to bed so that Helen and Clarence would have a moment of privacy, you know. They've come home from the dance at the Legion Hall. They've had a taffy apple and a root beer at Bonds on the way back. You know, that big moment. And she is wearing her cashmere sweater. And she's fantastic. And, and Clarence drives up in the car there and he says, Baby... He says, before you go in, he's sweating. You know, all night he's been, he's been debating whether to put his arm around him or not. How many of you men know that, that moment of decision? You sneak it up there like you always drive casually this way, you know. And then you, you have that brief moment when she edges towards the door. Then you say, oh, no, not another one. Oh, man. And, you know, these are all the little tests that people do to see whether it's working. See, he puts his arm out there, and she doesn't move. And the radio's playing beautiful music. Ah, everything is in his heaven now. And he imagines great delights to follow. And then, all of a sudden, he gets this fantastic cramp right here. How many of you have, have been in the, in the middle of an embrace with a girl, and all of a sudden you got a stiff neck? You know, guys like Tab Hunter never seem to have that, you know. <laughs> you never see Clark Gable in those old pictures. He grabs Myrna Loy. Here, baby. Oh! <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, I'll never forget the time, the one of the first times I was kissing a girl, I discovered girls sweat. <laughs> well, these are things you don't know. You know, really, you, you wonder about when you're a boy. <laughs> A lot of things you wonder about. There's speculation in the backyard, you know. 
three little eight-year-old kids are debating bi biological theories. <laughs> He's still debating them. <laughs> oh, man. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. I could just see Clarence. And he's got Helen there, and they've arrived up in front of the house, and he's got his 52 Ford. You know, the two-tone one he bought from Friendly Fred, the angry Armenian, the used car dealer over there in, in Fort Lee. You know, the one that was owned by the Presbyterian minister with the paralyzed legs. And they used to carry him out to his car every Sunday, and he'd just sit there for a while and pretend he was driving. And now he's got it, see? <laughs> and he wonders how it developed all the, all the bad habits. And it's got the rubber valve springs. And you know, it's, have you noticed that there are certain kinds... That brings up another point. Have you ever noticed that there's a whole collection of used cars that have colors that no new car ever has? Like those cars that are two-tone grape and pineapple. <laughs> those awful ones, you know? And he's, he's got one of those cars, you know, you, you know that kind, that, that, that type of car. It's got the decals down the side with all the arrows, you know. And he's got the Continental kit on the back, the phony spare tire. And he's got those, those phony Venetian blinds in the back. He's got the leopard skin steering wheel cover. And there he's sitting there, see, two little dice hanging, by the way, from here. <laughs> you know that bit. <laughs> And he's real sharp, you know, he's got his, he's got his pick them off the gas pipe racks, electric blue sport coat, and they arrive in front of the house. And he says, uh, <laughs> sure been, sure been nice being out with you. And she says nothing, which is a good sign, because one of the worst signs is Gee, I've got a headache. How many guys have gone out with girls who suddenly, in the last eight milliseconds, developed a splitting headache? Or an insane desire to get a package of cigarettes that was in the house? And they says, uh, as long as I'm going in, uh, I'll say goodbye now. And he's sitting there, see, no, no talk. He says, uh, gee, Helen, uh, you're one of the prettiest girls I ever saw. And there she is with her pneumatic things, you know. <laughs> they're sitting there in that darkness, and there's just a little slight... You know that wonderful moment we've all, we've all had? There's just the filtered-in light of a flickering street light somewhere. And a neon sign of Fred's pool room down the street. It's lighting up the side of the running board in the hood. Way off down the distance, there's a big arrow. Eat! Eat. You're in America, you know. This is where, this is the romance we all live in. It's pretty hard to work against this. And, and, and in, in the window comes the wafting, soft, easy aroma of Secaucus. In bloom. Just drifting in there, see. And he's got this big romantic moment coming up. And he says to her, Helen, And with that, he turns to her. Oh, darling! He grabs her. He pulls her like that. She comes up and says, Oh, Charlie! Pow! 
she gets hooked on his Rotary Club button. A flat, a flat tire on the left one. She spins away for a minute. He says, just a minute. He says, I got a vulcanizing kit in the back. And... <laughs> What's the matter? You... <laughs> There's somebody over there with a bad valve stem. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I, I remember, if, if you want to talk, if you want to talk about great moments in, in romance, <laughs> and, and, and we have all had them, these terrible moments in, in, in romance, I remember one time, all kids, when I was a kid, were movie fans. The movie, the movie fan was, was uh, truly, that's the only thing you had, you know. And kids used to debate endlessly various plots. How many of you remember sitting next to a girl who told you every last line of a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie, and you got something else on your mind? And she goes on and on. And she says, and then, then Fred, you see, Fred was a man, he always wore this high silk hat. And Fred was, he got up on the piano and he's got this clink, the cane, see, with the ivory. And she's talking on and on and on. And you keep saying to yourself, oh, baby. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, wow. And she says, and then at the end, he goes down the street. It's raining. See, it's Paris. And he's with Ginger Rogers, and it starts to rain. This little old man in the cart comes along, and they sing, singing in the rain. He walks down. He says, oh, gee, was well. And then she looks at you. And you ain't got an ivory-headed cane. There ain't a silk hat in sight. You're just a little, fat, pimply-faced sophomore from ham and high. And then you say, well, I remember this. This was with the first girl I ever really dated. Eileen Akers. I don't know where Eileen Akers is, but Eileen Akers has a memory for every Republic picture plot that was perpetrated in the four years I went to high school. And Eileen sat across from me in my dad's car on a dark Saturday night many eons ago and told me every last twist and turn of a Cary Grant movie, which by the way, I just recently saw on late, late television. And it was as rotten as she said. And as ridiculous. And the one thing I liked about it was that in between scenes, on would come Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean would come on, you know, and he would look out there. Have you noticed the change in Mr. Clean? You remember when Mr. Clean kind of looked like a... kind of looked like a... A General Eisenhower, who had just got out of the shower. Remember that? He looked like Ike with a T-shirt. Well, something has happened to old Mr. Clean in the last few months. I don't know where he's been hanging around. Have you noticed the look on his face? His eyebrows tilt up. And he comes on a scene, and you see these beautiful girls. Used to be little old scrub ladies. Remember the little old scrub lady? She'd look up and say, Oh, it's Mr. Clean. Now, they're chicks out of James Bond movies. And he never mentioned cleaning the floors. All of a sudden, you hear this voice. says, It's Mr. Clean. And he goes, ah, He looks. And all the girls go, ah! 
I wonder what they're screaming about. They only show his head. <laughs> Have you seen those? Oh, Mr. Clean has changed. Oh, wow. Everything has changed on television. They got this commercial about gum. Double your pleasure, double your fun. Wouldn't it be great if you could double everything the way they say? By buying a package of gum. Can you imagine poor people who take it literally? Who buy themselves a bottle of Ballantine to get some spirit? And they wind up with a headache. <laughs> Can you imagine a guy who buys himself a bottle of Pepsi-Cola hoping that he will stop being a Barry Goldwater fan and will start thinking young and be part of the new Pepsi generation? He slugs it down and his knee still hurts. And he hears the sound of the water dripping in the next room. And on the screen is an old Cary Grant movie. And on the screen, Ginger Rogers appears and assures him that the dream goes on. On Late Late Movie. Hey, do you ever have, seriously, do you ever have the feeling about four o'clock in the morning when you are watching Late Late Movies that somehow you're really rotten? You're really wasting your life. Do you ever have that feeling? Do you ever say to yourself, what am I doing here? And you can't stop. You're looking at this rotten old Charlie Ruggles movie. You know? And Marjorie Maine keeps coming in and out. And you just keep looking, looking. You can't give it up. And on comes the station break. And it goes, and all those lights are out in that apartment house except one. And there you are. The one last rotten person in all of Manhattan sitting in front of that screen with your mouth hanging open. And then there's that great moment when you get up to go to the John or something and you walk into the kitchen and your TV sets three rooms away and off in the distance from some other apartment <laughs> drifting down the air shaft with all the crud, you know, that flies down air shafts and the dirt and the beer cans, you can hear, there is another lost soul. Another lost soul bobbing on the Sargasso Sea of 20th century life. And you feel like opening your window and hollering up the air shaft, Hey! Whoever you are! Come on down and watch Mr. Clean with me. But you never do it. You sit there and on comes Clay and Clevis. Or Betty and Boop. Whoever these people are who are always chewing gum. Have you wondered about the places where they do that in those commercials? Have you seen that one couple that comes on and they've got what looks like a gazebo? Have you noticed that? Talk about elegant gum chewing. They got this gazebo and these two guys playing what looked like Stradivarius cellos. They look, you notice that little smile they give up like that? And Lorna and Larry walk over to this fountain that it's sprinkling down and she looks like a kind of debauched Alexis Smith. You remember Alexis Smith played all the society girls. She was the girl who was always engaged in the beginning of the picture, if you remember, to Cary Grant until he met Gene Arthur. 
who worked in the dime store in the second reel. She never married anybody. Chris, and suddenly I see her in the gum commercials, or what it looks like. And she's standing next to Larry. And Larry looks like a young Victor Jory. Have you noticed him? He stands there in his cummerbund, and behind him these two guys play. And I wonder what blasted dreams this represents. Are you aware that every cellist, as he begins to learn to play, that's a special instrument. When you're, uh, Learning to play the cello, friends, is not a casual thing. It is a difficult instrument. It's a classical instrument. And cello players have terrible times there. It's a very... In fact, it's one of the, probably one of the most awkward instruments this side of a tuba. Have you ever watched a lady cello player? <laughs> it's pretty exciting. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's one of the more exciting things in music. And, 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 and every, <laughs> every, every cello, oh yeah, cello is played like this. For the case of you who don't know it, it's played this way, see. It's very, and, and you know, you ought to see ladies jockeying, you know, it's... In fact, they have, they have what they call cello players' toreadors for that, in case you're interested. And a cello player is in a peculiarly vulnerable position in many ways. And, and it, it produces apologetic men. There has never been on record a loud cellist. Cellists do not have fistfights. There are loud piano players. Victor Borg is an example of a, <laughs> just thought of a great word I could use, a smart you-know-what piano player. He plays a piano and makes little jazzy remarks, but no cellist does that. They sit there and work away. And as they begin to work, they have dreams of being a Piatigorsky. All cellists do that. Can you imagine one day to find yourself, those are very, have you noticed how dignified those musicians look? Can you imagine two dignified musicians playing behind a pair of singing gum chewers? And they try to wring out of that melody everything that Mozart put into some of his better cello quartets. And then the commercial goes off. And on comes Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. Well, the reason I think about that is that I had an uncle, Uncle Al, who was a fiddle player, who started out to be a violinist. And Uncle Al used to carry his violin case around. And you know, violinists are like, are like cello players. They're serious. And he used to go to see Yehudi Menuhin. I remember this. He took my cousin Buddy to see Yehudi Menuhin and Buddy is still worried about it. It, you know, it made his head buzz. He was a South Side kid. And he had this uncle, poor Uncle Al, who played the fiddle. I remember one time Uncle Al, after years of fiddle playing, wound up in this great little joint on the South Side of Chicago playing the fiddle in an outfit called the Hungry Five. <laughs> Have you ever seen a funny hat fiddle player? He would come on wearing a pair of galoshes, red underwear, and he had a derby hat, and they would play the gypsy love call. They'd look out like that. And then he would go back into his dressing room and listen to Yehudi Menuhin records. And every time I watched those commercials, 
I wonder how the cello player says to all his friends, watch me play the cello behind the gum players. Speaking of uh, gum chewers, what station is this, folks? <laughs> well, where is it? Come on. New York, the Big Apple, for crying out loud. This is the big time, gang. And uh, we're at the limelight, and I think I'm going, to, I'm going to do something now that I suspect some of you might have come for. Uh, I have just come back. You probably wonder why I'm dressed this way. <laughs> well, it's handy sometimes. You'd be surprised what this place gets full of occasionally. Uh, incidentally, for those of you who wonder what this is, this is our symbolic listener. <laughs> if the shoe fits, you know what to do with it. Somebody came in and says, is that your mother? But uh, one, of the, one of the things that I promised to do tonight, if you listen to the show during the week, just two nights ago, I got back with, with two of my companions who are here in this room from a trip to one of the last unexplored areas of the world. Now, when I say unexplored, of course, that's, that's a, in the age of aircraft, the age of uh, float planes, that's a kind of uh, comparative word. There have been people there, but it's listed on the Peruvian Air Force charts as uncharted. I was in the Peruvian jungles, about seven or 800 miles on the eastern side, the eastern slope of the Peruvian, which or rather of the Andes, which slants way off up towards the Ecuadorian border, visiting a tribe of headhunters, real ex-headhunters, called the Chapra Indians. And it's funny to believe that just two or three nights ago, I was in a clearing at about this time, it was about 10.30 at night, tiny clearing that these Indians had made, where they lived. And by the way, this they're, they're nomadic, in case you're interested. They move throughout the jungle. They, they'll move maybe 10 miles or 20 miles up or down river to different clearings that sometimes their ancestors lived in. In fact, the clearing that we were in had been lived in by the ancestors of these Indians some 100 years before. And they knew it. It's a funny thing about the Indians' memory. They have no written language any of these tribes. And that's what these people, the missionaries that were there, are working on. They have no written language and no way to keep their history. All they do is tell stories. They, each one of their heads is filled. What corresponds to our education is an Indian's head full of myths and lore, knowledge about the jungle, and stories of his ancestors. They sit, and which, by the way, is what our education consists of, too in a very real way. And I brought back some things to give you an idea of some of the realities of this place. And I'm going to show them to you, and then if you're interested, I'd like to... I, this is something I rarely ever do on the Saturday night show. In fact, I've never done it. If you have any questions, I would like to hear questions from the floor about it. Are you interested in it? Yeah. No, really, seriously. Come on, relax. If you want to do it, fine. Because this, I'll say this, uh, when I had the chance to do it, I had, I had a lot of misgivings, 
And at first it seemed, I want to preface what we're going to do. Now, just listen to me for a moment. I had some misgivings. And then on the other hand, I thought, well, if you can go there, it, you know, we don't have any concept of, of the real frontier today. You know, most of us uh, think... The, in fact, the photographer who traveled with us, Saul Potemkin, who's way up there, uh, our, our hardy little band, he kept comparing it to the Catskills. <laughs> He'd never been out of the country, and he thought we were going there kind of like an overgrown concord. That's what he really thought, you know. And, and as we got further and further away from America, and we were traveling... No, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll mention you. I'll, I'll wave him up here. As we got further and further away from America, the three of us began to get quieter and quieter because it became realer. And then we landed in Lima, and we immediately took a plane, uh, a jungle airline. Can you imagine standing in an airport waiting to take a jungle airline? They have a special little airline that goes into the jungle called... Fawcett Airlines. It goes over the Andes. And they have little DC-3s. Incidentally, in case you don't know anything about aircraft, the DC-3 was the C-47 in World War II. And they have not built DC-3s since about 1947. So these airplanes were at least that old. Most of them were in the late 30s. Yeah, it's a great airplane. It's the Model T of aircraft, the Model A of aircraft. And we piled into this little airplane, and you should have seen the people in this jungle airplane. What kind of people do you think would be getting into a plane? You know, we're used to taking a plane to Philadelphia or to Chicago or someplace, an official-looking guys. Well, in this plane was a motley collection of, uh, of people out of all the Somerset Mom novels you've ever read. Here's a guy sitting opposite me. He's got, a, he's got desiccated yellow skin. He has been eating Atabrin tablets for the last 15 years. And he just sits there, and as the plane takes off, he is sipping out of, a, out of an aluminum flask. He's just sucking it. I don't know what kind of jungle juice was in this, but as we got closer and closer to the Andes, his head was going lower and lower. He was one of our debonair passengers. <laughs> You know, and, and there was a funny thing in the plane, too. They, they, they don't have stewardesses in these planes. They have a steward who's big shoulders, you know. He, he's, he's in there because they never know what's going to be in these planes. In fact, I heard a story of one of the planes, one of the jungle planes one day. A cheetah was loose in the plane. <laughs> and, and they traveled for 400 miles before they realized it wasn't just one of the passengers. <laughs> well, I just... <laughs> I'll tell you the real story of that later because it's an incredible story. In also in this same plane with the cheetah, there were four prize chickens that were being taken into this jungle chief. And the cheetah saw the chickens. And it was the greatest airline's meal. <laughs> and with, with the guy who's flying the plane trying to keep him away from his seat, driving a plane with one hand. So this is the kind of flying you do. We got up over the, over the Andes. Now, I've seen sights. I have flown many times over the Alps, the Bavarian Alps, the Swiss Alps, the German Alps, the French Maritime Alps. I've flown over the Sahara. I've flown over the outback country, which is considered a great sight from the air. But I have, believe me, if you ever get a chance to fly over the Andes, do it. It's incredible. 
It's a fantastic thing. And the thing that really scares you about it is the... These, these are angry mountains. You know, some mountains are just beautiful. You look at the Alps, and the Alps look remote and cold. You've seen pictures of them. They're all covered with snow. They look un, sort of inaccessible, but beautiful. These mountains look dangerous. The Andes Mountains just lay there brown. And there's not a stick of, of anywhere, there's not a stick of vegetation. They're just brown, black, great sweeps of gray. And they're high, they're huge mountains. And in these mountains, by the way, this is what makes them scary. There are ruins. There are Incan ruins in certain areas of the Andes Mountains. And you look out and there's a sense that you're really looking at the, at, at, at the, the thing that's in all of us, a kind of savage, primal past. It's a fantastic feeling. And nobody says much. They just look out at a plane. No matter how blasé they are, it scares them. Because there's also one other thing. If a plane goes down in the Andes, forget it. Just forget it. I mean, there ain't no going back. And once in a while, you can see way down there. I'm looking with my glasses. You can see in the middle of this wilderness. You can see tiny settlements just spotted miles and miles apart. And they say that in the Andes, in certain areas of the Andes, there are over one million Indians who have never been who have never contacted civilization or the white man. They're just there. And you can see them when you fly. This is not fiction. You fly over to this, and you can see occasionally little tin-roofed huts. And these places are mines, gold mines. Real prospectors are there. And boy, they live a life that's about as basic as you can get. And you go higher and higher until all of a sudden you're at the peak of the Andes. It's a mountain range that starts right outside of Lima, right on the coast. And just builds up and up and up and up, just like that. And here's the coast over here. And it's like temperate zone. The ocean is right there. And it's cool. It's beautiful. It's kind of just like New York, really, the, the climate. And one instant you're at the peak of this thing and everybody is sucking oxygen. They don't have the planes. The planes are not pressurized, by the way. And, and the photographer got up from his seat in back of me and he's green. <laughs> He's, he's never been out of the country before, you know. He's green. He says, I can't breathe. Huh. He's going off like this. And here's these little old grandmothers sitting there sucking their oxygen. And they give you a pipe, and the oxygen is pumped in. You sit and suck it. And suddenly, you're going down the other side. Incidentally, when we go over the mountains, the mountains are higher than we are. That is a sobering thought when you're looking up out of an airplane, see? <laughs> You look up here and you can see it's like two big walls. You know, you look right, and these guys are driving along and wow, wow. And the plane, of course, there's there's all kinds of air currents in this place, you know. And the plane goes, and you sit there. <laughs> and the guy comes up and down. He's wearing a big air mask. Have you ever seen a guy with the tanks on his back? This is the seriously. This is the steward, you know. And he's all he's got air mask and all that. And he's giving you Life magazine. <laughs> You should read about life, you know. <laughs> and on the cover of life is Anne Margaret. Yeah, this is life. And out there you see, you see these mountains black and gray, and that plane is sweating. And, and by the way, one other thing. After we got down, 
I'm with one of the jungle pilots. And he says, boy, he says, you know, <laughs> oh, these are something, these jungle pilots. The real ones that fly the little single-engine light, single light planes in over the jungle. And we got talking about this flight over the Andes. I mean, she came in on the DC-3, didn't you? I said, yeah. She said, boy, I don't know how they make it. I said, well, I bought a ticket, you know. Is, you know, you, don't, you feel like when you buy a ticket, it's all right, you know. And it comes in an envelope, and, you know, they put a little thing, it says C3. And you get in this plane, it has 21 seats, and it turns out that the plane is full because there's only nine guys in it. And you say, well, well, gee, where's all the rest of them? He says, well, the plane's full. It won't go up with more than that, and it just won't make it over the ocean. You don't know this. They don't tell you that, see. So he says, gee, you know, I don't know how they make it. He says, you know, that little single engine gets up there to 23, 24,000 feet. She's really sweating. I said, you mean that you don't think of the engines, you know, those little engines out there. Somehow they just go, wow, wow, wow. You can't imagine that little engine saying, I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? You remember the story of the little train when you were a kid? <laughs> well, how did I know I was riding in a little train, you know? And, and he says, you know, he says, I'm always amazed that they get over here. He says, and everybody goes down to this little jungle town, which is on the other side. It's like one giant hop. This plane just goes over and down. And on the other side, another world. It's another world. It's jungle. And suddenly when you get off over that mountain, you see a green carpet begin. And it stretches from one horizon to the other. I can't describe that sight. It's impossible. And it's flat. It's just solid green. Now, when you think of solid green, I suppose you think of flying over Pennsylvania, which is a green state. No, this has no variation in color. There is no field. There are no hills. It's just like a great green, soft, woolen carpet. And you realize that these trees down there are 200, maybe 150 to 200 feet high. Just a great canopy. And if you go in, they just don't find you. Well, on the other side of that mountain is a city, a, a strange frontier town in the heart of a jungle, right on the river, the, the Ukai River. It's a town called Pucalpo. Remember that. This is, believe me, all of the Wild West towns you can imagine in your life. It's like a combination, if you can imagine, of Singapore, Dodge City, uh, El Paso, Teaneck. <laughs> and over it all is the, is, the, is the most fantastic miasma of malaria. You just, you know malaria is there, you know. You can see the mosquitoes flying around waiting. They wait at the airport. They, on the other side of the fence, you know, I don't let them in. And, and <laughs> the plane comes down. I'll tell you, my friend, my friend Lee Chamberlain back here, who will tell you, who testify to this. I'll, I'll have him stand up. Lee, stand up back there. Is Lee back there? Lee Chamberlain? Where is he? Where is he? He's up front. There's Lee Chamberlain. Hi, Lee. Give him a hand. Lee, would you please say in your clip, Noel Coward fashion, good evening, everyone. How do you like that? Can you imagine this well-modulated English accent looking out on this airfield of total debauchery? He is wearing an ascot. 
And when he landed, and his first, and his first thing was, let's get out and show the cheeky blighters who's boss. <laughs> and we did, by the way. Sitting next to Lee is Sal Potemkin, who was our photographer. Sal, stand up. What's that? Oh, <laughs> believe me, the, the time I got struck by the anaconda, Saul was out in back taking pictures of a chicken. <laughs> but seriously, though, uh, he was the one that got sick on the trip. So, and as we landed in this airport, I want to tell you how this airport is, because you don't hear these things about travel. If you can imagine in the middle of this little jungle town, now, now listen to me. All set now? All right. In the middle of this jungle town, I mean the middle. I don't mean on the outskirts. In the middle of this town, they have a cleared space. And it's not, it's not concrete. It's not, it's not asphalt. They have just cleared the ground. And there are chickens, pigs, little kids. There's an old guy with a cart walking along like this. And the, the DC-3 comes in and it buzzes the airfield once to clear the chickens away. And you get the kids out of the way. I'll tell you, it's true. He goes, right down like, and you see them all running in a wave like that. And he makes one big turn and he comes down into an airfield that is about half the size of this room. <laughs> Woo! Wow. He goes, and you hear the flaps go down and boom, boom, boom. She hits the bumps and I'm hanging on the seat and I see a chicken go past. <laughs> I see a little old lady's face go past her. And we go taxiing around, and, 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 and the plane is still kind of cool inside, you know, because we've got some air left from the Andes. And somebody opens the door, and whoo, in comes the jungle. A cloud of mosquitoes. The pigs have been living on this runway for 45 years. And I don't know what you, do, what you know about what pigs do, but it was all there. You could smell dead toads. I mean, in the river down there and the open sewage and all of it. And, 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 and Lee looked at me and I looked at Lee. And somehow W.O.R. was nine million miles away. You forget about the world you've come from and you just wade in it, you know. You don't even think of it. You just wade in it. You'd be surprised. You get used to anything. You drink river water. And, Oh, after a while, you revert to type. I had a beard, angry little red eyes. I found three days later, I had red eyes. I was drinking brandy right out of a big jug, you know, like that. I was pulling poison darts out of me. <laughs> Spinning, you know. But seriously, we got into Pucalpo. And it's the, the, the airport, is, as I said, is one of those airports that you have to see to describe. And you'd be surprised how casual. You just get out of the airplane, and they just throw all your junk out. You know, you're used to going around the back and waiting with your ticket, and it comes out of the, sh you know, the slots. They just throw your stuff out of the ground. You know, it's all out there. And the plane goes, ah, and blows it all around. And they taxi away, and you pick your stuff up in the prop wash. And you see the plane's got a flat tire. It goes away, you know. And the only other plane they've got is over there with a bent wing. It's... I'm serious, no hangers, nothing, just this little building, you know, there's a little building, and in the, in the little building is a guy sitting there, he's, he's, one of, he's one of the Peruvians, he just sort of looks at you, 
And they, they kind of look pleased every time the plane gets in. They do. They really do. They applaud it. It, it got here again, you know. And, and so you walk through this gate and the heat is coming in. Well, we were met by a station wagon. Big, heavy, rough, metal. Not a station wagon like we know, but with the big round tires. And this was going to take us into a jungle town about three miles away. Not a town. It's a settlement on a river which is at the headwaters of the Amazon. This is a place called Yorinacochi, which means Palm Lake. Yorinacochi. And we drove out to this place. And I kept looking out, and the houses in this town thinned out, and suddenly it was jungle. And here we were. We were in a tiny missionary settlement. But these people have a little airplane. They have about five airplanes. They have a little airlines. And they fly into the real jungle, which is further on in. And, of course, all around us is real jungle. In fact, we were sitting in a house with a woman, and she said, we were having this dinner. You know, everything is such a struggle in the jungle. Can I tell you that, that, uh, that one thing that all of us wanted more than anything else was a drink of cold water? You have no idea what it's like. Everything is a struggle. Uh, meat. The instant you open meat or you have meat, it begins to turn green. Just like that. Uh, little things like jello. Little tiny, nothing, nothing gets hard. Jello is always liquid. They drink jello down there, you know. <laughs> it's a terrible drink, too, I'll tell you. Especially when there's three Baptist missionaries sitting there drinking jello with you, you know. And you got an idea there's something else you'd like. One of the missionaries came up to me. You know, they got a great sense of humor. These are real missionaries. I mean, they're really doing great work. Seriously. And one of them came up to me, and he's a bush pilot. And we are now flying. Actually, it didn't come up there. We were flying out over the jungle. We were about 500 miles in. Totally un, un, uh, unmapped country. And he looks at me, and, and you can hardly hear each other. And we're yelling over the, over the sound of the motor at each other. He says, well, how you like? You're in a coach. He's from Texas. I said, pretty good. Uh, come on, easy, baby. There's always one. She's a holdover from Johnny Carson. So he's from Texas. He got this talk. You know, he says, how do you like your Inacochi? I said, fine, Floyd. There's a pause. And he's a missionary, see? He's a bush pilot missionary. He's got baseball cap. He's been flying into the jungle now for eight years. Never been out of it. He says to me, you know what's wrong with that place? He says, you know, it's not the heat. It's the humility that gets you. <laughs> Which I thought was a great line about a missionary camp, but they really were great people. So we got into we got into this jungle camp, and they're lying on a river. It's a sort of a lake, a beautiful lake. And you know, here's the funny part of it: you never recognize a thing for what it is when you actually see it. I've see, I've been with people when they've witnessed a murder, and they didn't recognize it. They went home and they heard some noise, and they didn't know it. Well, here is this place that looks like a lake in the Catskills. It really did. You could see trees on the other side, and in, in the front there's flowers. It's just beautiful. And Saul Potemkin, who's walking with me, he's, we're looking out. He said, you know, I'm disappointed. I said, what do you mean, Saul? He says, well, you know, I, 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 I expect to see the nine-hole golf course here. I wonder if Buster Crab's around here someplace. You know, has Jerry Lewis got a piece of this joint? 
And here's this water there. And I felt that feeling too. See, I said, gee, you know, <laughs> come all this way. And here's this nice little lake. Well, about an hour later, we're having dinner in this tiny house, beautiful little house, all screened in, looking over the lake. And here's this lady who's one of the missionaries' wives, and they're putting on their finest for us. We noticed she wore the same dress all the time. They had nothing. She's got her flowered dress. And she's serving us a meal. And we're looking out over the lake. It's just bucolic, beautiful. And I said to her, making conversation, I said, gee, you know, it's the jungle. Did you ever see any snakes or anything? And she says, oh, yeah. She says, uh, she says yesterday, in fact, uh, two days ago, she says, right down there. And she points to this little beach where two missionary kids were swimming. She says, right down at the beach, she says, I got up in the morning, I looked out, and there was an anaconda swallowing a crocodile. It was sticking out of them, eight feet long. And I looked back at this lake, you know, it was unbelievable. I thought she was giving me the business. You know, I said, oh, come on, you know. I look out there, and it's getting to be dark, and I could see the moon coming up. And way off in the distance, you could hear a bird. Whoop, whoop. That was no sparrow. <laughs> and all of us sat there for a while and looked out, and we realized we were going in. This was the edge of it. What's it going to be like in there? We could see it off in the distance, just going on and on and on. And the next morning, we're sitting in these float planes, two little planes, floating around on, the, on this lake out there. It just looked beautiful. It was almost like, like Concord's Lake. And the pilot's sitting next to me, and it's loaded. The plane's got extra gas in it. And they carry a canteen. It's all they carry. They carry a canteen and a paddle and a survival kit that consists of unmeltable chocolate candy, a few sticks of gum, and some kind of vitamin tablets. That's all they carry. He gets in the plane. We sit down. These, you know these little, these little plexiglass windows they've got around them? I'm looking out. And he gets the note from the control tower, okay, go. And so we start gunning this motor. We start going across this lake. And ahead of us, all around us, the porpoises were surfacing. Are you aware that there's a freshwater porpoise? I did not know this until we got down into the Amazon area. That great porpoises come out of the water. And the plane is going, and the porpoises are going, and the jungle's going past. And he horses it back. Up we go. And 30 seconds later, we are out over the jungle. And there it is, stretching down below us. And we're following a river, a long, twisting, black, gray, brown river into this uncharted country. You want to hear more about it? Yeah. All right. Immediately after the news, we'll be back. Here, we're at the limelight, doing a kind of unusual show tonight. And we'll be back immediately following the news at about 11.05. And when we come back, I'll show you all of these artifacts, and I may even belt a few of you with a poison dart. Do you like that? Do you want it? Yeah. All right, we'll be back. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Here's a program note for you. Patricia McCann, daughter